0: Father, we do thank you for this time together. We thank you for the, the great gift that we have in community and the gift of your people coming together to be refreshed and edified and um, prepared to go back out into the world the following week as ambassadors in a foreign country with a foreign worldview, um, displaying and preaching the gospel of your dear son, in hopes that your spirit would move and draw men to yourself. We pray that we live faithful lives and that you would help us this morning um, as we study um, a little bit of history. And we're so thankful that the, the story of your grace to the nations uh, didn't end with the last chapter of Acts, but that you continue to move in the hearts of men to, to illuminate them and to draw them into um, your word and to think th- deeply through the gospel and what it means and who we are before a holy God. And So we pray that we would be once again in awe of the men you raised up to preserve these things for your church. Um, and we pray that we uh, get more understanding of the, the depth of your grace toward our wrecked race. We pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me be respectful. Um, all right, so last time, okay, so last time we talked about bad definitions of Calvinism. We're going over Calvinism. We're, we're talking about the, the, the doctrines of grace. And so last time we talked about some bad definitions of Calvinism and the, um, the uh, uh, objections you often get in these very helpful, enlightening Facebook challenges on what you believe and why and so we talked about some bad strawman arguments there and we're going to go through that as we go through the five points the biblical basis of the five points we'll go through what we believe and why and then we'll talk about the objections to them later but today i thought it'd be fun interesting and helpful hopefully to do kind of a history this this whole controversy did not start with john calvin even though it's named by uh, from him historically it did not start with him. It started a long time ago. I would argue it started in Isaiah. But that's a, well, Genesis, actually, if you really want to get down to it. But, but from, his, from a history standpoint, it started early in the church, uh, this understanding. Um, Calvin discovered them. Okay, so this is what, morning. this is what I've called the lesson. And some of you will get this and some of you won't, all right? So we're going to kind of go with just a brief, general 10,000 feet above it, history of, of the controversy on, on Calvinism. I'm calling it Calvinism, a history. Yeah. So, some of you may get that, some of you don't. If you don't, let's just move on. All right. So, Calvin didn't invent Calvinism. He discovered it, and, and he was not the first. He merely kind of polished the doctrines up and, and developed them during the Reformation. But he was greatly influenced by those who had gone before him, uh, mainly um, Augustine or Augustine, however you want to say that. This is an old debate. This is an old debate. Uh, divine sovereignty and human responsibility have been talked about even in pagan terms. Greek philosophers debated this issue. Uh, but we see it more, more clearly uh, maybe between Paul and, and the Judaizers and Acts. We talked about some of that and some of the discussions that they had in, in Galatians. Paul's, um, Paul's talk about the gospel there. Um, the Judaizers put you know, too much emphasis on our works and faith. They kind of combined those two, and Paul said, no, it's grace and faith. So you see that, that kind of argument, even, even the basis of that being this divine um, sovereignty and human responsibility there. So the, the basic question we talked about last week boils down to who initiates salvation, right? Who initiates it? Man initiates and God responds is one side of the coin, and it's the most widely held uh, position. The biblical position is uh, that God initiates and man responds, right? At least I I believe that that's the biblical position. So you have this this debate that's been going on for a long time. Early centuries of the church, second, third centuries, it really wasn't developed what the Bible talks about that in, in the way that the Trinity and the nature of Christ was fought over. There's a lot of Gnostic stuff going on in this first, uh, the 2nd and 3rd century. And so that was really where the battle was, was who is Jesus and who is the Holy Spirit and what is the nature of God and what does it mean to be Christian if you understand the nature of God? God in three persons, Blessed Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. All that stuff was argued in the 2nd 3rd century. Um, so there, there wasn't really this, this systematic, uh, well-orbed view of these things, but they were talked about, and 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 I'll try to pepper as we go through some of the uh, some of the earlier church father statements on some of these things. But for now, uh, the major um, systematic debate on that issue wasn't until, um, well, a British monk named Pelagius. Uh, Pelagius uh, was born, we think, around 370, and he traveled and taught in Rome. North Africa and Palestine, Palestine. So he taught in those areas. Um, so I'm, this is the odd thing. I'm talking patristics with you and Phillips in the class, right? I told the guys earlier, there's a quote from, uh, from, from Augustine whenever he was being, um, being you know, retiring. That uh, his successor stood at the at the at the lectern and, and Augustine was in the you know bishop's chair or whatever and I said the the the, the quote is the the guy that was preaching that morning who was taking over for Augustine the Hippo said the the cricket chirps while the swan remains silent right so I'm talking and Philip's in here on patric- doctor doctor Phil is in here on patristics <laughs> and I'm and I'm over here anyway so I'm giving you my layman's. Who's the cricket? Who's the swan? Yeah. <laughs> so, suddenly my leg itches. Anyway, so, so pa- talking about Pelagius, right? He was an ascetic guy. He was very bothered, as Luther would later be, uh, very bothered by the corruption in Rome, the sin in Rome when he, when he taught there, and he, and he just recoiled from that. Um, he, he, he had that monk monastic kind of view of things he wasn 't as extreme as some of the desert monks, but he, he, he strove for salvation through denial of food uh, and, and other creature comforts and that's, and that 's kind of part of the monasticism of the day. Uh, even Athanasius kind of admired those guys for whatever reason, it, but he was very legalistic to the core. You work out your salvation through denying yourself of these kinds of things. And, you know, like much bad theology, his theology was a reaction to the sin that he saw around him. Um, It it was uh, the the practices of the day. Orthodoxy oftentimes is, is, is harmed by bad practice. Uh, and so his reaction was bad pra- to bad practice of what the orthodoxy was, and, and he saw that it excused sin rather than challenged it. We would call it kind of anonymism the, the, the against the law there is no law i 'm all grace, so I can do whatever I want kind of stuff that of course is false, but his response was extreme the other way you know um, and, it, and, it, and it influenced his view of The nature of man. Who is man before a holy God? And his view was um, that Adam was created morally neutral. Okay, All things being equal, he had good and evil in his hand, and he either, you know, assuming he didn't get an ear infection, he would tip one way or the other. So he he was morally neutral, um, neither good nor evil, and so are you when you're born. The fall did not affect humanity. In other words, they didn't, humans did not inherit the sin of Adam. <clears throat> it was just because of bad um, examples, right, that, 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 uh, that men sin. Some, follow, you know, Cain followed the example of Adam. I don't know how he got there, but Cain followed the example of Adam, and on and on and on it goes. That's why people sin. But it is possible for man from birth, to not sin, to always choose what's right. Okay, that was his view. Tabula rasa, you ever heard that phrase? A blank slate? That's kind of the view of Pelagius. Uh, it, we, we sin because of what's, what our experiences are, because of the examples we have, but we don't by nature sin. It's, it's just, we're, we're, they talk fancy to us, you know, that kind of thing. So Adam sinned for himself alone, Pelagius denied the original sin of Adam. Uh, We're born into the same moral uh, moral neutrality um, as Adam. Men do sin, but it's only because they follow bad examples of other people. Christ alone never sinned. And here's an interesting question that uh, Pelagius' opponents asked him. Well, if we're all basically born morally neutral and Christ never sinned, what kept Christ from sinning since he had the same bad examples as everybody else? Interesting. Right, I never found an answer to that question. I don't think he answered it. I think he ran back to England, basically. What? So that was a that was a a great question. But Pelagius, nevertheless, a man might live his whole life without sin. And I'm going to give you kind of some of the language that he used. And this is a quote from him: Um, "All therefore have a free will to sin and not to sin. It is not free will if it requires the aid of God." Because everyone has it within the power of his own will to do anything or not to do it. Our victory over sin and Satan proceeds not from the help which God affords, but is owing to our own free will. Well, where's the focus there? I can, I can create my own reality. I can create my world. I can, create, I can do what I want to do with my free will right? One of his favorite maxims was, if I ought, I can. If God tells me to do something, I must be able to do it, right? That, that is his position in a nutshell. God never commands that which is impossible for us. Man is able or he's not responsible, you see. Does that still happen today? Do we still hear those arguments today? I was born this way. I can't be responsible for my actions. And also, what was that thing, the secret, or, you know, all of that, what you put out in the world, the kind of karma you put out, is what yeah. you get back into yeah. it. Yeah, I don't know that he'd go quite there, but it certainly flows from man as God, Yeah. Like, yeah man as ultimate kind I'm of idea. Like if I, if I want to have... Whatever, I've got to think about it. Think positive because sure. if I'm going to get there, sure. it's going to be my own doing. Yeah, and, I, and again, I don't, I don't know that Pelagius was there, but it comes from that idea of my free will is what's at stake. My free will is what determines my salvation and how I operate it. God, God has done all he can do, and I'm just the one who's, who is morally neutral, and I choose. Um, all right, so man is able because he's responsible. Man initiates, God responds. And here's the thing that's interesting to me. Pelagius viewed Christ's death as merely a moral example to us, merely it really accomplished nothing except to give humanity a moral example. Um, uh, by, by following his example, we won't sin, but be saved. But we—it's in our hands. Our fate is in our hands. What, How long did it take for him to be uh, deemed heretical? Well, it was—it was a fight, and. Uh, it, uh, it, it it see he was born in what four sixty, uh, I think the Council of Orange was like five ooh nuts uh, five twenty nine so it took a while about a generation maybe, but but um, you know he, Pelagius taught that that God chooses man only because he foresaw his right choices, that man would choose God. All grace is universal and resistible. He taught that. And Christians can lose their salvation. So one of the statements that sent Pelagius over the moon was by um, a, a, a pastor in Hippo, uh, which is North Africa. Um, and it was contained in a book called The Confessions. And it was written by Augustine. However you want to land by your free will on that name. Um, one, of the, one of the prayers in Augustine's book uh, was command what you will. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Command what you will, then give what you command. All the English translations have the I just It drives me nuts. So we're just going to say command what you will, then give what you command. Well, what's he saying there? You're telling me what I ought to do, but I can't do it unless you give it to me to do it. You see, I ought, therefore I can, right? If I ought to do it, I can do it. Command what you will, then give what you command. You see, that's completely opposite. And Pelagius had a nosebleed over this. So, unlike Pelagius, uh, Augustine had an overt experience with the fallen nature of man, his own. Um, he... he um, before becoming the most important early church father, uh, he was a really dedicated pagan, really dedicated. I mean, uh, letcher with a capital L kind of guy. Uh, he, uh, he grew up in North Africa and stop right there. Anybody that tells you that Christianity is a white man's religion, you, they've just identified themselves as one of the most historically ignorant people that you'll ever talk to. It's not. The great fathers that we talk about in, in the patristic era, a lot of them came from North Africa. Uh, and so Augustine was one of those guys. He had a—he was born in North Africa. He had a Christian mother and a non-Christian father, and he spent—he spent his youth uh, chasing women and wine, you know, basically. Um, and uh, eventually, he joined the Manichaean cult, kind of a dualistic uh, cult. And uh, he was a gifted thinker, and and went off to study to become a, a rhetorician or a lawyer, which most of the greats did. Um, I would venture to say all of them, but I might be overstating it just a tad. Um, however, after sitting under the preaching of Ambrose of Milan, who he considered a great speaker, he went to go listen to him as a speaker, he was sitting under the preaching of Ambrose of Milan. He he had a, a radical uh, conversion, and the story of his conversion is really, really interesting, and I, I I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that, but let's just say his wrestling was with, I I know that I'm involved in all this sexual sin, I can't give it up. And I know that to follow Jesus, I'm going to have to give that up. And I can't do it. I can't do it. And, and there's this whole story about he hears a child singing, take up and read, take up and read. And he picks up the, the book and he reads a, a very innocuous script. It wasn't even something that was, I can't remember what the scripture was. But, but yeah, it was from Romans. And so, so but, but from that, he is... He, he recognizes a conversion in his own heart where Christ is more precious than the stuff he was clinging to. So it's a radical conversion. Pelagius didn't have that overt radical transformation. He was, he was a fairly decent chap and thought very highly of his decentness. So, but, but Augustine saw it in his own life. I can't do this unless you grant me to do this. And so, both of these men are coming from, from kind of experience, but also from Scripture. Augustine is, is looking at what the Bible says about these things, and it is illuminating what happened in his own heart. When he started out writing, he very much free will. Yeah, of course it's free will. We, you know Early Augustine's very similar to... To well, somewhat similar to what you see with, with a, a, a lot of uh, the traditionalist Baptists, but, um, but today, but later on, wrestling with Pelagius, he, um, he was, what? I know my own heart. I know what God did in me. I see what Paul talks about in Romans and other places, and he 's just fighting with this um, and, and for him, the gospel was at stake here. Who, who is, who's God? Is man God? Do we we control what Christ did on the cross by clinging to our free will? And here, I'm glad we got that worked out with my free will. Or is God sovereign, doing a a sovereign gifting, a work, a recreation, a new birth in the heart of a dead person? So there's completely polar opposite views here. So Augustine... um, so Augustine's uh, 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 doctrine, basically, that he pulled as he studied through Scripture, and was responding to Pelagius, maintained that human nature had been so completely corrupted by Adam's fall that no one in himself has the ability to obey either the law or the gospel. Divine grace is essential to choosing to do right. What we add to it is how we sin. What we add to our nature is we get to we we how, how to ramp it up. You know, he talked about some grace that was he talked about in terms of prevenient grace. You may have heard that term from, from some Methodist friends. He didn't talk about prevenient grace, but as being more of a restraint toward the freedom we have to to plunge headlong into sin. But it wasn't decisive grace. It wasn't the the effectual grace, uh, effective grace that he talked about uh, later. The, the grace that, he, that is effective, is extended only to those whom God predestined to eternal life before the foundation of the world. So the act of faith results not from the sinner's free will, which was Pelagianism. The act of faith results from God's free grace, which is bestowed on the elect only. So who's free? In Augustine's view, God is free. It's not man's freedom that's at stake here. It's God's freedom. His sovereignty that's at stake. Uh, Augustine's Focused on maintaining the honor, integrity, sovereignty of God, Pelagius wants to elevate the will of man. You see, that's the fight. Grace is always totally undeserved, and it's given freely by God, not a response to man asking for it. It's unconditional. It's not based on something in us. It's God's freedom at at work there. Um, Man is unable to, quote, do his part. God has to do it for him. And so Augustine maintained that freedom of God in granting grace for man to believe as opposed to Pelagius' absolute freedom of man to believe. Regeneration, new birth, perseverance, all of that is dependent upon God. Uh, and since God has promised grace and election, those who receive grace will always persevere to the end. The elect are not only preserved by God, but they persevere because of God. And so uh, perfectionism, Pelagius taught you to be perfect, that you could keep being consistent, that you could obtain this perfectionism. He said that's impossible to do that. You can't do that. Our old nature is still within us. We're going to sin. You can't obtain perfectionism. But God's free grace will preserve us and will cause us to persevere in shedding sin, killing sin, and becoming more and more like Christ until He returns. Um, we work because he's working in us as Philippians would say so Pelagius placed the emphasis on man Augustine looked to scripture that showed God as totally sovereign and man as totally sinful unable but guilty so Augustine's arguments were pretty um, forceful Uh, they were pretty um, convincing and Pelagianism just toppled in Christian thought he was I, I think ran back to Britain uh But that didn't stop it. You know, bad theology is like weeds. In our garden, we pull one, ten, come up. And so, some of that happened here. Uh, Pelagianism died, but some of his followers and some other guys were trying to find the middle between Augustine and Pelagius. And um, one of them was a Frenchman. I was French. Um, The only redeeming thing out of France was Calvin. But anyway, um, so, (laughs) <laughs> some, some of the, some of the, some of the guys. One of them was called John Cassian. He lived three hundred and sixty to four hundred and thirty-five, and they tried to find some, um, some, some. Halfway point, you know. They thought that they thought that Pelagius was too extreme. Yeah, we can't be perfect. We know, you know, we can't say that we're completely neutral. There's some indication in Scripture. that There's some moral corruption in man. But Augustine's view, it's way too extreme on the other side, and it's going to give license to sin. If it's all grace of God, what does the man to do? What, what can we? How are we going to be able to curb this this sinfulness in the heart of man? So. This this theology is known as semi-Pelagianism, big big $10 word we can use at your next party, semi-Pelagianism. It taught that man, with his own natural powers, is able to take the first step. He takes the first step toward God. Um, And and this this step, using this island of faith, this island of righteousness in me, I can Take my step toward God, reaching out, as it were, in a sea with a life ring or whatever those things are, a little doohickey around me, that I reach out and then, and then God will, that, that merits, that obtains a response of the Holy Spirit to convert the sinner. What does that do? God is, His hands are tied until this person who is bent toward sin does the impossible and makes the first step, right? Semi-Pelagianism gives still um, this this residual ultimate uh, power to unregenerate man, doing from the will that they say is corrupt, but it's it's only mostly dead. You know, it's not it's not quite all the way dead in sin. Um, John, John, but you see what they're trying to. You see what they're trying to do? They're trying to find a middle ground between Pelagius and Augustine. But, but they, they, they acknowledge that Adam's sin extended to the rest of humanity, that human nature was corrupted by sin. They got that. But it's not dead, as Augustine taught, and nor is it healthy, as Pelagius taught. So they it, it, mostly did. So it, it's sick and dying. Man is half good, half evil. He cannot save himself but needs grace, but he's got to ask for it. He has to make the step toward asking for it. All men are given prevenient grace where their wills are enabled to ask for saving grace. But grace is not irresistible or particular. Um, man still initiates. God replies. Man does not inherit the guilt or hopelessness or a hopeless inability of original sin. So they sought to the middle, but they landed closer to Pelagius, you see, mm-hmm. than, than, than Augustine. Um, enter the Council of Orange. I guess that's in France. Orange. Yeah. Wrong. Wrong. Yes, and I will. 529. The Council of Orange is one of the most important councils of the early church on this issue. I would say probably it is. It was often pointed to by the Reformers as evidence for the Roman Catholic Church abandoning the doctrine that they supposedly held to uh, um, in the day of the Reformation. They're... The, uh, the abandoning the, the 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 theology of its own council fathers and, and church doctors, so the, they were, they would point back to Orange, saying, "You're teaching this, but your council condemned this as a heresy." You know, the, so much for councils. All right, it, it confirmed the Augustinian understanding of the nature of man and condemned not only Pelagianism but semi-Pelagianism. I want to give you a little bit of flavor uh, of the language. Um, Canons six and seven of of those of that council. Just read it to you. Just listen to to this and think of your Baptist friends. If anyone says that God has mercy upon us when, apart from His grace, we believe, will, desire, strive, labor, pray, watch, study, seek, ask, or knock, But does not confess that it is by the infusion and inspiration of the Holy Spirit within us that we have the faith, the will, or the strength to do all these things as we ought. Or, if anyone makes the assistance of grace depend on the humility or obedience of man and does not agree that it is a gift of grace itself that we are obedient and humble, he contradicts the apostle who says, What have you? that you did not receive, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. And by the grace of God, I am what I am, 1 Corinthians fifteen ten. That's Canon 6. Canon 7 says, If anyone affirms that we can form any right opinion or make any right choice which relates to the salvation of eternal life as is expedient for us or that we can be saved, that is, assent to the preaching of the gospel through our natural powers, Without the illumination and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who makes all men gladly assent to and believe in the truth, he is led astray by a heretical spirit. What is he doing there? What are they doing? They're condemning semi Pelagianism not as another faction of Christianity, they're calling it heretical. That's a big word. And does not understand the voice of God. Another big statement. Who says in the gospel, For apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, 5. And the word of the apostle, not that we are competent of ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, our competence is from God. 2 Corinthians 3, 5. That's a big deal. If you would just knock, if you would just pray, if you would just walk this aisle and go jump in a tank, that's your first step God takes the nine, right? Does that sound familiar? Um, R.C. Sproul wrote a book. I think what was it called, the Pelagian Captivity of the Church, or the Babylonian Captivity? That was Martin Luther wrote, Babylonian Captivity of the Church. This is the this is the warp and woof of our evangelism today in, in in many churches. If you just come down the aisle, if you just do this, if you just do, here's your membership card, therefore you've got to be saved. Theology has consequences. Ideas have consequences. And the worldview that if we can persuade someone to use their sovereign free will to take that first step, then they'll be saved. You can do all kinds of gimmicks with that. You'll go to the gas station and buy people's gas, so they'll maybe do, read the card, the prayer card. On the, I mean, these are gimmicks that people have used to try to get people just to say the prayer. It doesn't, it doesn't even um, address the issue that Pelagius was worried about, which is fighting sin. That was his concern, fight sin. Well, you start giving people that kind of stuff. If you just use your will to make this stuff, I got, I'm done. I've done what I need to do, and you add to it. Um, I'm once saved, always saved. You've got a recipe for some very, very bad examples of people who are supposedly Christian, right? It harms the church, it harms the gospel, it harms the 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 witness to, of Christ in the world. When people who can say, "I'm a Christian because I got dunked in the tank," that's what they told me. Ideas have consequences. So, all the reformers looked back to these debates, the Pelagian, semi-Pelagian debates, and, um, and this council, and wondered why the Roman Catholic Church abandoned it. Um, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses in uh, 1517 at the church door in Wittenberg, uh, which is always fun to say. Uh, and, and so that, that was the beginning of the, the formal Reformation. 43 years later, a Dutch professor named Jacob Arminius was born. Okay? And originally, he was a very staunch Calvinist. He studied under Theodore Beza, very high end, super lapsarian, big worded guy, you know. Uh, very staunch Calvinist. Um, and he trained under him, under Beza. He found himself in a debate once. And he couldn't defend his views. And so rather than get sharpened his iron a little bit more, he started reevaluating what he formerly believed. And uh, he, uh, he, that's kind of an important point though, isn't it? If we're not able to defend what we believe, how do we address that? Mm -hmm. If it's an unbiblical position, and you see, gosh, this really doesn't fit with the Bible, reevaluate, check it out. If it's biblical, get better at defending it, (laughs) you know? But we have to assess uh, where where we are on that. So otherwise we're going to be to and fro by the winds of error. So Arminius looked to Romans 7 and he said that Paul, rather than describing the life of a Christian who fights with innate sin in their life, what I want to do, I don't do, what I don't want to do, I do, who can deliver me from this body of death? He saw that as Paul's pre-conversion. See, Uh, Paul is talking about a man who inherits a bent towards sin from Adam, but it doesn't mean he necessarily sins. Um, he doesn't inherit the guilt of Adam, Arminius taught. He called for the revision to the Belgic Confession of the Dutch Reformed Church. Now, churches were done a little bit differently. Um, the The American Church of Environmentalism is the state church now, um, but back then they had different denominations, different areas of, of, of uh, there were some states that were Catholic controlled there were some that were reformed controlled there were some lutheran controlled i don 't think anybody any Anabaptist controlled anything they were too busy being, being hunted but um, so his, his theology then was submitted to the state the states general had a council basically to to deal with. The, um, the theology of uh, well, he's calling for a change in the state. His and his he actually died uh, during the heat of the debate, and about a year later, his his followers, oddly enough, called Armenians, um, not with an e, with an i. Uh, they weren't from the country of Armenia. They were anyway. Um, his theology was submitted to to the the States General in in, in in Holland, and they were and they were calling. Uh, for uh, the Reformation of the Belgian Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism, which were the two main documents that the Church in Holland used, the Dutch Reformed Church used to um, to judge their their churches, and so of course he was called a Pelagian. I mean, you, but he wasn't a Pelagian. Arminius was not. He was closer to to that of semi-Pelagianism in his views, um, but his. Overall theology is actually better than semi-Pelagians. And so we, we kind of think of Arminius as being in error, but not outside the pale of orthodoxy. I mean, if, if orthodoxy is a circle, he's pegging the edge, you know, kind of he's on the side there. So uh, but he's still within he's still within Orthodox views. They didn't think so at the church, <laughs> at the Dutch church. They they viewed what he said as heretical. But I think I think over time we've kind of Backed off of that. Um, All right. Arminius himself was closer to Calvinism than his followers. Uh, His followers kind of went a little bit more radical on that. Um, All right. And anyway, like I said, Arminius died during the controversy. His followers would draw up five articles of faith based upon his teaching. Okay. They're, They're the ones who promoted. These are our five points of attack that we're going to do against the Dutch Reformed Church in these areas of doctrine. So the response to that was to respond to the five points of attack. And it was done uh, what's known as the Synod of Dort. Dort. It's a great word. Um, This was a seven-month meeting of pastors from Holland, Germany, Scotland, England. I mean, guys from all over came to discuss what we believe and why. Respond to the, 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 the followers of Arminius had these objections or these, com, these protestations uh, against the Dutch church, and they called them the remonstrance. That was for protestation. So the remonstrance was given to um, the states general, and the synod was called to respond to it. And so they, they um, objected to the doctrines in the confession of the catechism relating to divine sovereignty, human inability unconditional election, particular redemption, irresistible grace, and the preservation of the saints. This is their position. And I had a chart I was going to bring, and I completely forgot of, of the different positions, but maybe I'll bring it next week. So here's their position. God elects or approves on the basis of foreseen faith or unbelief. You've heard that one? God looks down the corridor of time and sees who responds with their awesome free will whether or not they will believe or not—that's that's the Arminius Arminian position on that. God looks down the quarter of time for foreseen faith or unbelief. Number two, Christ died for all men and for every man, although only believers are saved. Number three, man is so depraved that divine grace is necessary for faith and or any good deed. Number four, this grace may be resisted. And number five, whether all who are truly regenerate will certainly persevere in the faith is a point which needs further investigation. They weren't sure. Do we, do we stay? Are, are we preserved in a state of grace? Are we preserved as redeemed? Or can we lose it? Later, they would say, yeah, you can lose it. But that, to be fair, has been a point of debate among Armenians and, and, and uh, apparently traditionalist Baptists for, for many years. So there you have it. Well, the response, Synod of Dort, uh, was convened uh, on November thirteenth, 1618. It included 84 Dutch delegates. A dozen or so more were secular commissioners. You had people who were not theologians or doctors also involved in this who were part of the state because there's that meshing of church and state. We would not have that now. We, we have the Gospel Coalition. Um <laughs> It also included 27 delegates from other countries, including Germany, Switzerland, England, and Scotland, and they held 154 sessions for seven months, debating, discussing, studying these doctrines. What do we believe and why? All right. They concluded on May 9, 1619, and they had given a close examination to the protestations of the Armenians. They compared it with Scripture, and they found that the Armenian position was lacking in the light of Scripture. And I'll just, uh, I'll just say it like that. And they unanimously rejected them. However, they felt that merely rejecting something wasn't going to get the job done. Because this was kind of spreading like wildfire and they needed to come out. On what, uh, on what they believe. So they needed to set forth the true Calvinistic teaching uh, in relationship to what they had been questioned on by the Arminians. So they organized their response into five chapters, which has become known as the five points of Calvinism. They, they addressed Arminius's uh, head of doctrine with their response. And so it's five points, five chapters of, of their response. And it was not organized. T-U-L-I-P. It's not organized that way. We don't know where that came from. TULIP. That an acronym. We have no idea where that came from. In the providence of God, it seems kind of fun because it, it was a Dutch thing, right? So, who knows? We don't know where that came from. But they did organize it by uh, five, five points. They did reject our, the Armenian doctrines as heretical, which seems weird in our day when this is such a prevalent thing. Um, they're, not, they're not even questioned today, the Arminians' uh, position. But the theologians of that day took it a, a very different view. They saw Scripture sets out a system of doctrine much different than that proposed by the Armenians, And specifically, they argued and found in Scripture that <coughs> salvation is of the Lord. It's of the Lord, <laughs> Martin Lord Jones. It, it, it is, a, it is a, a, a work of his. The sinner does not save himself in any sense. Adam's fall had completely ruined the race. And in contrast to the Arminian position of being mostly dead, the nature of man was dead, dead in sin, Ephesians 2, right? Um, the ability to believe was itself a gift from God bestowed freely by God on whomever He willed. It was not man, but God, who determined which sinners would be shown mercy and grace. And that was generally where they land, landed. <clears throat> now, I've got a chart, I forgot to bring it, that kind of sets these up and shows this is the Arminian position, this is the Calvinistic, or the Senate of Dort response to these. And I'll bring those next week. I think it's helpful to have those comparisons. Um, <clears throat> I, I think... I had delusions of grandeur that this wouldn't take as long as it has. Uh, And I wanted to kind of maybe bring out the the recent traditionalist statement and compare it to even the Arminian position. (laughs) There's a very, um, there's a battle in Baptist life over this issue, and it's kind of silly. Uh, like you know, Baptists weren't traditionally Calvinistic. We, this is more Presbyterian, deals with infant baptism than it should with Baptistic life, and it's 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 a, it's a nonsense argument. Historically, uh, American Baptists, especially, have followed the, the the vein of this. It's gotten lessened and weaker, lessened and weaker, uh, through the centuries. But the, the the confessions that we had in the early uh, sixteen seventeen hundreds that were here were mirrored to. Um, the, the London Baptist Confession, which was, very, which was pawned off of uh, Westminster Confession, which is a very Calvinistic confession. So you, you see that historically that that's that. The, the statement that these guys have put out, there's a, there's a theologian who's an Arminian, the theology, not the country, an Arminian uh, uh, theologian named uh, Roger Olson, I believe. And he is probably the best thinker of the day on, on their side. They, we'll give them one uh, on their side. And he called that. He questioned whether or not the statement that was put out by a traditionalist Baptist, uh, whether or not it was even orthodox. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't believe this. I wouldn't, I wouldn't sign this. As an Armenian who doesn't like Calvinism, I wouldn't sign this. So there, there is, there's a call for us to be good thinkers and as we 're as we 're working through doctrine to think precisely about what we 're saying in the light of the history in which we 're given as well, first scripture, then what have other great thinkers said, and how and how have generally how's the church fallen on these things and uh, you see that in these councils and in the, in the, in the uh, augustine and, and, and Pelagian debate where these guys have fallen who who um, seems to be the dominant um, the dominant position throughout the centuries I, I do think that even though that's the case that there's a, there's a great weight of history on the side of this argument um, it is uh, our responsibility as priests of our homes uh, before God to, uh, to, to study this for ourselves you know, I don't believe this because Augustine says it I don't believe it because Calvin says it I believe it because the Bible says it but I've worked through it, I've tried to study it, and I continue to study. it. I think it's, you know, it's one of those things that's like an onion with a lot of layers. I, I encourage. that's what Christianity is. Christianity is a thinking man's religion. And so as you read some of this stuff, you see, if you read through the councils of uh, the, the Synod of Dort, <clears throat> number one, it's a great devotional, and it's very pastoral in the way they wrote it. I really admire that, guys who are like fighting. But they write this very pastorally. and They give you scripture, that, 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 that what they're doing. And we'll go through some of that as we move forward. Read the Bible along with these things and see if these things are so. Uh, don't just assume it because we go to Reformed Baptist Church that, you know, study it for yourself. If you have questions, ask and debate and let iron sharpen iron on that. It's a good thing, it's a healthy thing to do. Um, don't do it over Facebook, it's never profitable. <laughs> never profitable. I got sucked into one of those recently, and I wanted to just uh, I had to repent for murderous thoughts. Anyway, so yeah, oh, gosh. <sighs> Some people you just rather bang your head against the wall than talk to them on Facebook, but but they won't go to lunch with you. <laughs> anyway, there it is. So any any questions? I know I just I, like I said 10,000 foot view of history. There's a lot of stuff that I did. I did not talk about. Yeah. Of Dort, when, yeah. When was that? 1619 is when it, whenever it, it was the final. So 100 years after the nailing of the. Yeah, yeah. So second generation, third generation r- reformation. They did declare it as heretical. Just they it. did, but I'm not. Okay. I think that's, a, I think that's um, they get the gospel right. Christ died for sinners, of whom I am chief. Um, they get substitutionary atonement there. I look at Arminianism not as heretical teaching, I think it's an error. I, I, I don't think it's right, and I think it leads to her- heresy, open theism being a very, very obvious one, but I don't think guys who are gospel guys who believe that we've inherited sin, that we, you know they believe this idea of prevenient grace that brings you to a state of neutrality, but God has to work first, and, and, and they, they put a lot of emphasis on that prevenient grace statement by Augustine, or Augustine, however you want to say it. <laughs> but i don't see them as heretical and i and i think that's a danger to do that because then we just look like i mean it's just a witch hunt thing i think i think semi-pelagianism i think the traditional statement certainly could be if we had stronger tighter uh, church discipline in the baptist church we might have been able to come down on that a little harder um, but but not you know guys like olson i wouldn't call him a heretic that'd be crazy the guy loves Jesus I'm not not, that's crazy so I just think that what they are doing is an error and and it's kind of a confused inconsistent Christianity we may call it Christians with heretical views well no because then they wouldn't be Christian I think er error is probably the better way to go on that because I'm sure I have some error in my views so Um, you think at that point it'd be something that would need to be debated between it's an in-house debate yeah Arminianism and Calvinism is an in-house debate. Yeah. So I'm not going to throw those guys under the heresy bus. It's, it's not a, um, <clears throat> uh, how to put this, uh, they are Christians, they are, they are correct on what is core to being a yeah. Christian. Yeah, yeah. It's the... This is a secondary, this is a secondary issue. This is not a core issue. And I think it's one of the reasons it was, wait, it was a while before it actually got to be debated is that, the, you know, who is God, who is Jesus was the core issue early on. And then it became who is man before holy God, you know. And so Pelagius uh, clearly, I mean, because that affected the gospel, right? Pelagius, Jesus just died for a good example. There's no atonement there. Uh, there's no reason for his sacrifice, um, and semi-Pelagianism to the, to the same extent. There's no reason for his sacrifice. I mean, so the gospel's at stake in those. With Arminianism, I don't think so. They, you need Jesus to have any of this, right? You need Jesus to have, to be forgiven, to be, I mean, so they will confirm uh, atonement, the necessary, of, uh, the necessity of Christ's blood for salvation. So I'm not gonna throw those guys on the bus. So, yeah. I know it's 1013, real quick. Oh my gosh, Would it is. you say that the elect do have free will or will? Or would you say they're still slaves to righteousness, that God is able to free for you? <clears throat> I would say that in the great mystery of salvation, <laughs> that I, am, I, I I trust, and I believe, that God has called me from before the foundation of the world to be saved. And so the way I view my salvation is, but prior to Christ doing the work that only He can do in my heart, I'm a slave to sin just like the rest of mankind. I think Ephesians 2 speaks to that issue. Even if you're elect, that doesn't save you. What saves you is faith in Christ. And I can't give what I don't have. And so, but for the Holy Spirit working and gifting faith in me, I would still be a God hater, you know. So, so the election talks is basically a, a marker of at some point in time and space, he will no longer resist, right? He gets tired of the resisting, I guess is a way to put it. That's, that's, I don't think that people are born with this free will if they're elect and not if they're you know, reprobate. I don't, I don't think that. I think we're all born, and it's carved out of a fallen humanity, those who will come to Christ, not, not just these peppers of free will people. So free will doesn't exist? Free will, uh, I don't like that term because of Pelagius' view, and it tends to have that connotation. I prefer the term free agency because we make choices. Right. Have a will. I, we have a will. We're image bearers, and God makes choices, and He gives us that that ability to choose. We're not animals. We're not simply instinct creatures. But underneath that is ultimately God's will at work to will and to do according to His good pleasure. So it's not unbounded free will. It's bounded. It's, it's confined. It, yeah. If I'm if I am if I am this, this is yeah. something we need to chat over over lunch. Yeah. yeah. Either later today or yeah no we need to we need to have a Facebook debate <laughs> we should have a Facebook debate be done with it uh, all right it is ten fifteen they 're starting in um, in four minutes yeah. Four. yeah yeah all right so let 's pray thank you guys for being here God we, we do thank you uh, for minds and wills and emotions that you have granted to us and we know that these things are um, Deep and profound, and have massive implications for the gospel and our relationship to a fallen world. And so, we pray for your grace again that your Holy Spirit would give us wisdom and how to approach dead hearts, preaching the gospel, what men ought to do, in hopes that you, in commanding them, would give what you command, turning dead hearts into those alive to the beauty and joys of Jesus. And we thank you for Him. And the grace that you've given, and pray that you would keep us kept in the faith that you've given to us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. There, there's a one-time debate over there. Oh, my God.